Santa Barbara emergency physician Dr. Jason Prostowski has worked on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic treating emergency room patients. In an interview with KCSB, Dr. Prostowski shared his encounters with healthcare disparities at work, how emergency physicians responded to the disproportionate impact of the virus on Indigenous, Black, and Latinx communities, and what he thinks should be done to foster trust between marginalized communities and medical institutions. First off, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your career, especially some of the work you've done during the pandemic? Sure. Well, thank you, Aubrey, for giving the opportunity to be part of this program. I graduated from UCSB in the 90s, so I'm a gaucho. It's always nice to be on KCSB. Um, so I'm, I'm a local Santa Barbara emergency physician, and my background is in public health and in conflict. Uh, I work in uh, the emergency department here in, at Santa Barbara. I'm the medical director of our local Santa Barbara City 911 system and, and, and fire department. And uh, before returning from, from to Santa Barbara, I worked with uh, in a variety of different uh, conflict zones and post-conflict uh, um, landscapes. Uh, I've worked with uh, Native American Health, and this, this COVID-19 pandemic has brought me back to the Navajo Nation. So uh, I'm... On Tuesday, when we're discussing, I'll be coming on my way back to Santa Barbara from uh, working in the emergency department out there in the Navajo Nation. And uh, I teach the underserved medicine seminar at UCSB, we're part of the Medical Humanities Initiative. Um, and so thinking about uh, medical ethics, distributive justice, historical context, structural racism, narrative is all part of um, this pandemic uh, and uh, clinical medicine and, and public health. So throughout COVID-19 and during your work as an emergency physician, what health and care disparities did you notice? Wow, that, so, so Aubrey, thank you for that question. It's a very complicated question. Um, and in some ways we are surprised, but those of us who have been in the trenches and been in the world of health equity for a while, we're not surprised at all. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is a very racist, ageist virus. Um, it um, impacts certain communities um, with um, much more severity and much more um, um, uh, destruction than, than others. Um, and when we look closely at it, none of us are surprised because the same communities that are the most impacted by COVID-19 are also the same communities that are impacted by uh, violence, malnutrition, obesity, uh, cardiovascular disease, poor access to healthcare, structural racism, uh, police brutality. I mean, there's no surprises here when we think about it, that when we look at our society, the communities that are living in a population density that is the most crowded, who work as essential workers and do not have paid time off, who cannot work from home, who rely on schools for their kids to get upward mobility and for them to get a meal every day, those are the same communities that were most impacted by COVID-19. Um, and uh, when we think about who was the most likely to end up on a ventilator in the ICU or, or dead from COVID-19, again, obesity, cardiovascular disease, chronic, um, um, chronic medical conditions, 
are um, much more are the certain underserved marginalized communities are far more predisposed uh, to these outcomes. So, you know, here it is as we're turning the corner on COVID-19 because the vaccines have exceeded our expectations, which is wonderful and is a true testament to the creativity and the scientists that have been working around the clocks. We're romanticizing a little bit about the way the world was before the pandemic. And the way the world was before the pandemic, the normal that existed before pandemic was not okay, right? These same communities that are absolutely just ravaged by COVID-19 um, were struggling before the pandemic. Um, and I always like to quote uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, who uh, is an oncologist at, at Harvard and a, a novel and a, and a writer. You know, he thinks about COVID-19 as a stress test. And in, in clinical medicine, a lot of times when someone has heart disease, we put them on the treadmill to see how does their heart react when we stress it. COVID-19 was this stress test. COVID-19 has showed where our system is failing. When I say our system, I'm not just talking about our healthcare system, which is really not a healthcare system, it's a disease management business, but also all of our social safety net systems and all of the historical context and structural racism that has marginalized and impacted uh, communities of color for the last hundreds of years, um, and now all of a sudden when COVID-19 happens, we're like, oh, well, look at that. Did, did you realize that Native Americans, Latinx, and the African-American community were, are more vulnerable to COVID-19? It must be something in their genes. No, it's all of these social determinants of health that have been accumulating over the last few hundred years that have made people vulnerable to this horrible, this horrible pandemic. And now that we, you know, the lights are turned on, we're kind of aware of it. The question is, is what kind of new normal are we going to create as a society? So data on case numbers in Santa Barbara County released throughout the pandemic revealed that the Native American and Latinx communities, especially within farm workers, were being disproportionately affected. How did emergency physicians um, reach out and what did you learn from it? So it's a great question. Um, you know, it, a lot of times, you know, people say we don't have universal health care in the United States, but in fact, we actually do. It's called emergency health care. Uh, the emergency department, which I'm very proud to be an emergency physician, uh, we never turn anyone away. It's a violation of federal law. It's a violation of medical ethics to turn anyone away. So when people have nowhere else to go, where do they end up? They end up in the emergency department. Right. So in a lot of ways, working in the ER is the ultimate litmus test to where the social needs of our communities, uh, which of those social needs are not being met. Um, and so when this pandemic happened, you know, a lot of people who had resources and were able to reach out to their primary care physician and engage in telehealth. And once we had tools, I mean, remember in this pandemic, this time last year, we were scared. We did not know or understand our adversary, but now we have over a year of data and the, the accumulation of the world's best and brightest minds working on it. And we have techniques that actually improve outcomes. Um, as an emergency physician, a lot of times the people who are the most vulnerable, um, the people who are the most distrusting of the healthcare infrastructure, uh, Latinx, Native Americans, 
African-Americans. Their distrust is based on very real historical context. There's reasons why they don't want to come to the doctor, right? And that's kind of, out of you know, maybe that's in the scope of this discussion. Maybe it's not. And we have to know that history and understand and appreciate that history. But part of the problem is, is when vulnerable communities get sick and come to the emergency department, oftentimes they've let it go too far. If, if I had just seen them a week ago, we could have gotten out ahead of this, but now people are really, really sick. And it's been terrifying being in the trenches during a pandemic, uh, putting our own health and safety um, uh, into harm's way. I mean, the first three months of this pandemic, I lived in the guest room of our home away from my wife and family because I was scared that I was going to catch COVID and give it to them because I was, I got coughed. I saw COVID patients every night. Um, and seeing people come in and it's a respiratory virus. It affects their ability to breathe. It affects their oxygenation. People coming in feeling weak and confused because their lungs were not getting enough oxygen to their brain. And then trying to talk to their families um, and, and having no visitors in the hospital, only being able to use iPads. You know, not only are there cultural barriers of access and communication barriers, because when we're talking about the Latinx community, uh, there's a lot of non-English speakers, but now we have physical barriers as well. I have to talk to them with an iPad. And I know that once I commit a patient to a ventilator, statistically speaking, their mortality skyrockets. So if I have someone who is older, diabetic, overweight, um, and very poor and has waited last minute before they come to the emergency room, um, whether they're of the Latinx or African-American or Native American um, community, um, once they come in, my goal is to keep them off the ventilator. Because once we put them on the ventilator, then the likelihood of us extubating and getting them off becomes rarer. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot of techniques. What we saw in New York in April we saw very high mortalities. And because my colleagues and brothers and sisters in New York were such extraordinary physician scientists, not only were they caring for really sick patients, but they were also studying the disease and learning the disease and learning from their mistakes and sharing their mistakes because we didn't know initially what we were dealing with. And we got better at it. And fortunately, we in Santa Barbara County, our critical care team is extraordinary amazing, brave, courageous, poetic scientists who look at the data and adjust their approach as new research emerges. And because of that, we were able to really do well getting patients off of ventilators. On the topic of vaccines, given the widespread misinformation going on, what are some common misconceptions and concerns people have about the COVID-19 vaccine that have been brought up to you? And how have you dispelled some of these concerns or assured people? Mm -hmm. So vaccine hesitancy in the epidemic of misinformation is your generation's epidemic to, to address uh, because it's getting worse. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do a lot of, of town hall meetings and public health outreach in, in the world of vaccines because, um, Prevention is best. Once someone ends up in the ICU with COVID, they're in the ICU for three weeks um, and they require 
a very sophisticated team and their, their life is basically never going back to normal. They're going to, they're going to carry the wounds of COVID with them for the rest of their lives. And here it is. We have a, a, a prevention that is inexpensive, remarkably effective and widely available. And, you know, people don't respond to data. They respond to stories. So I, you know, Aubrey, I can sit here and go through all of the data and how the Pfizer vaccine was distributed to 4 million people in Israel. And it had this few people had side effects and it prevented this many hospitalizations and infections. But you being a human being and being a human being social and on social media and potentially with your echo chambers, you'll hear one story about one person who knows someone who got the vaccine and then his head exploded. And like, aha, I knew it. These vaccines are not safe. I know someone who knows someone who took a vaccine and their head exploded. Um, and that story creates fear and fear changes behavior far more effectively than logic and data does. So part of our goal in public health and dealing with vaccine hesitancy is not just to talk about the data. You know, and a lot of people ask me, hey, Dr. Jason, what vaccine should I get? I'm like, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Get the one that you can get today because it's not doing you any good next week. Get it today um, because science is messy um, and it's been under the microscope for the last year. And we're seeing, you know, with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, this is very good. And it's a one-time dose and it doesn't require uh, robust refrigeration to store and transport, which makes it great when it comes to outreach campaigns in the in rural communities um, and in underserved communities. But, you know, there was, um, uh, what is it? Uh, I think it was six cases of a blood clot in the brain of the, 7 million uh, doses that were given, which is, you know, one case in every 1.2 million um, doses given, which, you know, when I talk to people in finance or talk to people who play blackjack or poker, like that's a one in a million chance of getting, you know, that's get it. COVID is a bad disease. This works. It prevents COVID. Um, but people don't think in the terms of data and numbers, they're scared. People are always scared of something they don't understand. And people think that the vaccine has been rushed. The process has been rushed, but it hasn't. The bureaucracy has been rushed. When we threw all kinds of money, because usually when you're developing a vaccine, you come up with the idea, then you test it in the lab, then you test it on animals, and you test it on a dozen people. And, and then once you're done testing the first phase, then you start you know, gearing up for production, you did the next phase. With COVID, it was such an international priority. Um, everyone, put, they, they did all of these processes in parallel at the same time. So while we were developing the vaccines, we were also developing the factories to produce them and the supply chain to get them out there, right? These things always take time, but it took less time because we invested money because it was a priority because we as a global society needed it to be done. So most people say, oh, it's rushed. You don't trust it. It wasn't rushed. The bureaucracy was rushed. So moving forward, how do we learn from this pandemic in terms of addressing health disparities and bringing about a more equitable healthcare system 
that fosters trust within marginalized communities? It's mm-hmm. a tough question. I, I want to say the first thing we can do to gain people's trust is to behave trustworthy, um, which we haven't always done. And um, the second thing we can do is to practice good quality evidence-based medicine and acknowledge um, what the numbers state so clearly that certain people um, get different quality and different access to care than others. And at the end of the day in public health, we're only as healthy as our neighbors. So if you wanna sell it as, as uh, um, you know, individualistic self-preservation. I want people in my community to be healthy because it makes me healthier. Um, I want uh, low-income communities of color to have access to not just vaccines, but education, nutrition, um, childcare, uh, social safety nets, affordable housing, um, you know, fair work environments, um, because if we as a society provide that, then that's better for me and my family. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, we need to have a critical mass of enough people in the medical community who, who acknowledge and, and agree with that. And we need to behave trustworthy. Um, there's a reason that underserved communities don't trust doctors. Um, and a lot of those things are based on very haunting historical realities. Um, and if I want people to trust me, I need to earn their trust. Um, and I think the jury's still out whether or not we as a medical community have done that. Um, you know, I think some of us have. You know, I know I'm just looking at your panel, some, a lot of people on the panel have. Uh, but trust is hard earned. It's hard earned and it's easily lost. Um, and it needs, relationships need to be invested in consistently and continually. Um, and that's gonna take time. Thank you to Dr. Jason Prostowski for joining us on KCSB News. Dr. Prostowski will speak on his experiences and these issues in greater detail at KCSB News's upcoming webinar event a year in COVID, medical racism, care disparities, and health misinformation, taking place on Tuesday, May 18th at 4 p.m. You can find registration information and more at kcsb.org.